0: Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, that was pretty sweet, wasn't it? What a blessing. We are going to uh, celebrate communion today, as you might be able to see from where you're seated. So that should be a sweet time as well. We also want to pray for the the ladies of our fellowship. Uh, So many of them, 53 I think it is, uh, are down at the Jersey Shore uh, with this year's winter's retreat. And they're celebrating communion as well, so we want to be praying for them. So let's go before the Lord lot of men out here today as I'm seeing. It's like a men's group with a couple ladies scattered in. Um, We'll talk about football or something. Father, we thank you for, Lord, the time to uh, worship together. Lord, to be able to gather together with uh, like-minded people. Lord, to rub shoulders and uh, as we sway to bob back off of one another and to hear out of our uh, our side ears uh, there the person next to us singing at the top of their lungs and and to know that you have done a common work within us that you have uh, you've done a stirring work to draw not just ourselves but this room to yourself and you've opened up not just our eyes but the eyes of so many in this room to yourself you've saved us Lord, you've taken us from death to the place of life. You've taken us from bondage to freedom. You opened our eyes that we might see and believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah who gave his life as a ransom for many and for us. And so, Lord, you've blessed us already this morning with your presence. We ask that you might do that again as we uh, dig into your word and we consider these things we pray that you would do that again as we eat this bread and drink this cup in remembrance of you we pray for our friends down at the jersey shore the beach that you would bless the ladies that you would use this time away and the things that uh, you were able to uh, invest into their hearts in sort of the uh, the purposeful time of being away lord that that seed planted would indeed bear much fruit. Lord, you'd bless the fellowship of those ladies and their time in your word and in communion. Bless our children in their classrooms. Raise up laborers for Christ that love you with all their hearts and are used by you to win others to you as well. Lord, that's our prayer, so use our study in this room for that purpose too, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll remind you, for those that uh, need to know this, uh, the cup this morning is grape juice. Uh, For some of you, that's important. And uh, the bread is gluten-free, for those that uh, need to know that. We know that people have skipped uh, communion because of one or the other of those two reasons. And so we don't want anyone to do so if if, uh, they don't need to. Well, we are in Mark chapter 4, moving along in our study of this uh, exciting book here. We're looking at our Lord Jesus Christ. We're watching him as he ministers uh, to the masses that are around him, as well as to the individuals uh, as well. And it's been exciting to consider um, that for me. I, I try to just picture myself, whenever we dig into the Gospels, both personally and as a group, is to just sort of picture myself as a guy that would be sitting on the side, and what I would be thinking and how I would be responding uh, to these things. We've been trying to do that. Now, when we were last together, I pointed out to you that in chapter 4, Jesus begins a new teaching method, a new style of teaching. He has moved out of the the classroom. He's moved out of the synagogue and into the streets, so to speak. And you're going to see now Jesus doing a lot more open mass meeting Type of things. Even as he pulls his own disciples up, upside, he does more of this mass meeting. And in that, he is doing a lot more of teaching through the use of parables, telling stories, earthly stories with a heavenly message, so that the people could hear them and they could grasp them. And we looked last week at maybe the most common or most well-known of his parables, or at least one of them, and that is the parable of the sower. I called it the parable of the soils because it really is about the soil receiving the same seed that goes into each one of them and some of them not doing a thing with it at all. Others of them sort of a little bit of fruit or a little bit of a plant life here and there, but no fruit. And then some of them bearing fruit a hundredfold miraculously. It's the parable of the soils. And we spent time when we considered that. And that is the first of Jesus's parables first one that is recorded in Matthew Mark and in the Gospel of Luke but it won't be his last look down at uh mark 433 I think we looked at this we skimmed up ahead last time it says and with many such parables Jesus spoke to them as they were able to hear it he didn't speak to them without a parable that is the masses but privately he explained these things to his disciples and so remember two things are going on in, in this time of ministry Since the opposition of the leaders, the religious leaders, has come against Jesus, he's pulled out of the synagogue into the streets. And so he's speaking to the masses in that way. But at the same time, since Matthew chapter 3, he's pulled the apostles aside, he's investing into them, and in chapter 6 he's going to send them. And so we see him teaching in the parable, but explaining it to his disciples. A new style of ministry here. And over the next 10 chapters, we're going to see that again and again. Now, what we did not do, we looked at the parable of the soils, but we did not look at verses 10 through 12. And so I want to go back and I want to take some time with that. The, the parable of the sower it begins at verse 1, it runs down to verse 9. It's then explained in verse 13 going down to verse 20. But we didn't have enough time to really spend with verses 10 through 12. And so let me reread those or read over those with you and then we'll talk about them. It says, now when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Verse 12, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should be forgiven. Now, if you notice there, uh, notice about halfway down, if you're looking up at the the thing on the wall there, um, you'll notice that it says, they may indeed see, but not perceive, indeed hear, but not understand. That's in quotations. That comes from a prophecy in, in the book of Isaiah. And so Jesus makes reference back to that particular prophecy. Now, as we read this particular verse, I don't know about you, but it's somewhat troubling to me. Because I look at verse 12, and that seems to be saying, what Jesus is saying is, well, I speak in parables so that po- some people won't understand what I'm saying and they'll die and go to hell. And, and that just doesn't feel like Jesus to me. Uh, that's not the impression that I get of Jesus as I make my way through the Scriptures. And so it may seem to be communicating that, but as good students of the Word, which we try to be, that's why we go verse by verse by verse through the entire Bible because we want to be good students of the Word. As good students of the Word, we would want to ask ourselves, if that's the conclusion that we think that text seems to be saying, then we want to ask ourselves this question, well, is that the overarching message of Scripture? is the overarching message of Scripture that Jesus does not want certain people to be saved and he wants to send them to hell. Does that seem like the overarching message of Scripture? Uh, Okay, good. I hope the answer is no. It doesn't seem like it. So then that should give us pause coming to that previous conclusion. It should cause us to kind of pull back and say, well, that doesn't seem right. Let me dig into this a little bit further. That's what a good student of the Word of God will do. We never want... To base a doctrine or even an interpretation of a passage of scripture based on what it seems to be saying. You never want to do that. You get yourself in trouble when you do so. And that's what groups will do. They'll focus in on one little point, one little idea taken out of context perhaps, and they'll build this whole system around it. And then they got to go find other scriptures that support that or at least try to do so. And so in an instance like this, where it seems to be saying something that contradicts our overall understanding of the scripture of the whole, the problem is likely with our interpretation of what we think it is saying. So what does the Bible clearly say? We got a little... We're resting in the Lord. Someone give him a little... What's the Bible clearly say about Jesus' desire for the loss? Well, John chapter 3 one of the most well-known passages of scripture. You see it at every sporting event. It's hanging in the end zone. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, it says. The apostle Peter In his second epistle, he presents to us God's heart about the matter. He says this, The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. It says in the prophet Ezekiel, God's declaring these words through his prophet. He says, Surely as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from their ways. Turn, he says, turn. From your evil ways for why should you die o house of israel the apostle paul wrote to his mentor timothy he said this this is good and is pleasing in the sight of god our savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth so think through some of those not wishing that any should perish takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked desires all people to be saved turn turn why should you perish it doesn't seem to me that Jesus, if Jesus thinks that way, as those verses are clearly saying, that he would in turn then deliberately try to confuse people as people think Mark chapter 4 is saying. Because God's not going to contradict himself in his word. So then what is Mark saying? When he quotes Jesus as saying that they may indeed see but not perceive, indeed hear but not understand, lest they should be forgiven. What is Mark trying to get at? Well, I think a helpful thing then in these instances is, if possible, go to the parallel passages. Sometimes in Scripture, we have parallel passages that sell, tell the same story from a different perspective. And that particularly happens in the Gospels. And as I mentioned earlier, in this case, we have three, uh, three different places that are speaking about this particular passage. Matthew and Luke. Matthew chapter 13, Luke chapter 8. I'm going to draw your attention to the Matthew passage because I think it shines and sheds some light on this so-called controversy that may be here. And you're probably thinking, I didn't know there was controversy at all. Well, there's a lot. If you do the reading, people are like, oh my gosh, Jesus is evil, you know, kind of thing. He's not. He's a good guy. He's the Lord. Anyway, Matthew records this for us. Now, one thing Matthew tells us that we don't really get from Mark is in verse 10 of Matthew chapter 13, is the disciples ask him, why all the parables? That's like the, not exactly, but it's a general idea. Why all the parables? I don't get it. And Jesus in verse 13, he answers this way. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says. So remember how Mark wrote it. And Jesus quotes the prophet and so on and so forth. So notice, I think Matthew's giving us much more information. Mark condensed it for us. Matthew opens it up for us. He says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. You will indeed hear but never understand, see but never perceive. And why? Because this people's heart has grown dull. And with their eyes, they can barely hear. And their eyes, excuse me, ears, they can't hear at all with their eyes. I'll tell you that. But with their ears, they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. I I suspect if all we had was Matthew's account of this, there wouldn't be any controversy at all. We would sort of read Matthew's words and draw this conclusion because their hearts had grown dull, that their ears had grown hard of hearing, that they had closed their eyes so they could not see, that Jesus in respond taught them in parables so that maybe they would be able to see. He came at them from another direction so that perhaps, hopefully, some of them might respond and might return. The difficulty is that Mark just gives us a little bit of that, not enough of it, and so we go to Matthew's account to comment, if you will, on Mark's account. In Jesus' first coming, He did not come to bring judgment and condemnation. Because again, as I looked at in Mark chapter 3, the world was already condemned. Jesus came to make it possible for the lost to see. And the lost might have life. Well, here we are. We are about 21 months into Jesus' ministry, probably a little beyond that now, about two years into his ministry. Even though it's Mark chapter 4, it's about two years gone by in Jesus' public ministry. And more and more and more, he's experiencing this opposition from the religious leaders. Because Jesus is challenging their established order of the religious leaders. If he would just sort of get in line and do what everyone's supposed to do, the religious leaders wouldn't have mind. But Jesus called them out. He challenged them. He taught things that were different from what they were familiar with. And the soil of the hearts of those religious leaders was hard. It was unreceptive. And that was passing on to the people of society as well. And Jesus desperately wants to reach society. And so we might think Jesus was mad. He would get mad. You don't want to listen to me? Fine. And be angry with them. But that's not at all where Jesus is at. Rather than get mad, he's grieved. His heart is hurting that they're not responding. And so, as I said earlier, he tries plan B, so to speak. I'm going to reach these people one way or another, if, if at, at all, some of them at least. And so he goes to the stories, and he tells the parable, hoping that some will respond. Now, remember, that's the Masses he also has his closest disciples, and he's trying to reach those closest disciples as well, train them up, because he's going to send them out. And so there's a message for them as well in this process, and that is a message about what kingdom work is like. What does it mean to be a minister of Jesus Christ? And and I use that Not in the capital M, like you have a title and what do you do for a living? I'm a minister of Jesus Christ. I use that from the perspective of all of us as Christians. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, every one of us is sent out to minister in his name in one way or another, in word and in deed. He tells us that. And Jesus is telling these disciples, I'm going to send you out. And when you go out, you're going to have to do kingdom work. And I want you to know some of the things you're going to encounter when you get out there. Because as we saw last week, the, same, the minister sows the same seed. The farmer sows the same seed. And some of that seed bears fruit, and others of that seed doesn't do anything. And, it's, and mo- most of the time, a third of the time, or three-fourths of the time, it seemed like nothing was happening. And that's enough to cause a person being sent out, particularly for the first time, to become discouraged. And I think Jesus here is uh, anticipating that possible discouragement. And he's given them these series of parables on kingdom work and kingdom ministry. And to make that point, he points to this prophet Isaiah here. Remember I quoted that. This is from Isaiah chapter 6. He says, or Jesus quoted it. He said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he said, here I am, send me. All right, so you go back and you look at the context of what Jesus quotes from Isaiah in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. The the context of it is God's working on Isaiah's heart. Who's going to go? And Isaiah says, send me. Here I am, send me. Then four or five verses later, those very same things that uh, Jesus said to his disciple, the father says to Isaiah. Ministry is going to be, okay, I'll send you, but ministry is going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. You're going to feel like you're wasting your time. Nothing is happening. I told the people at my work again and again and again, none of them are responding. I'm just not going to tell anybody else anymore. Or people are responding negatively toward me. They're angry with me. They're mad at me. They're calling me this and that and saying these things about me. I'm not going to do it anymore. Most of the time or much of the time, you're going to feel like your ministry is a waste of time. Your efforts are a waste of time. And you're going to wrestle as I do. You're going to wrestle with, you know what? I'm going to heaven, and I'm just going to forget everybody else and go to heaven and, you know, do what I have to do. But the Lord is saying, don't give up. Keep ministering. Keep ministering. Keep throwing the seed out there because some of that seed will bear fruit. And let me tell you, I was thinking about this a lot this week. When we get to heaven, I don't know if it's how it works, but remember there, there was that old song by Ray Boltz, old people here. There was that old song, Thank You. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. You know the song. Us old people do. I would hear that song, it would would just move me. And I would be like, Lord, I want to be that. So anyway, go look up the song. Well, in that song, the general idea is this cool picture that I really like to contemplate and think about, is that when we get to heaven, that folks are going to come up to us and say thank you to us, because when you sent that missionary to that other part of the world, I'm one of the people that got saved as a result of that missionary's efforts. I'm here because of you. And when you were that Sunday school teacher and working back in the classroom and you thought nobody was listening, I'm a kid who was listening. And I didn't respond right away, but later on in my life, I did respond. And I'm here today because of you. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. And and what I've been meditating on and thinking about is even if my life's work as a Christian, not as a minister, capital M, but as a Christian, even if my life's work leads to one person getting saved, and when I get to heaven and that person comes up to me, if this is how it works, and says, I'm here because of you, my entire eternity is gonna be impacted by that reality. I wanna pour my life, we wanna pour our lives into other people so that their destinies, their eternities can be transformed forever. And Jesus is telling these disciples and you and I, don't be discouraged. Much of the work that you do may have no fruit, but some of the work you do will have fruit. Keep pouring out, keep pouring out. And he explains the same thing to the disciples that the Lord, the Father, explained to Isaiah there in the Old Testament. The disciples had asked Jesus why he is now exclusively teaching in parables, and Jesus provided the answer to them so that more people can understand Now he goes on in verse twenty one to tell another parable. So let's skip up to twenty-one, where we left off last week. And it says, He said to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket? Or under a bed, or not and not on a stand? All right, I I know I messed that up a little bit. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. so jesus shifts the lesson but it's the same message he shifts from a seed in the ground to a lamp up on a table he says is a lamp brought or bought to be put under a basket or a bed and of course the answer is no you don't buy a nice lamp plug it in turn it on and put it under your bed so that under the bed is lit or something like that you put it on the table beside the bed beside your couch so that it gives light to the room You put it where it should go so that it will do what it was designed to do, which is give light to the room. And so the disciples, they must have been thinking, maybe they asked the question, we have no record of it, but they must have been thinking something like, well, isn't the teaching of a parable a deliberate masking of the truth? To which Jesus would say, no. Jesus is saying, why would I bring a light, the light of truth, and then hide it? Like a lamp and hide it under a basket or under a bed. The purpose of the parables is not to conceal truth, but to reveal truth. Lights are meant to illuminate and to be set up on stands. And the purpose of the parables is the same. They're meant to bring illumination. And so, just like the seed, the lamp is going to do what it was designed to do. Just like the seed, put it in the ground. In some place, somewhere, it's going to grow and bear fruit. Well, just like the lamp, put it up on. A table so that it can give forth life. And again, though much of the efforts might seem to be for waste, the reality is, do what it, just put it where it's supposed to be and it'll do what it is supposed to do. Jesus tells the disciples, You are possessors of the mystery of God's kingdom. You've been given, verse 11 there, I don't think it's verse 11, but anyway, there it says, You have been given, uh, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Paul would say in another place in 2 Corinthians, he would say this. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Notice there, and he has committed to us the message of that reconciliation. You see, Jesus Christ did the work, and he sends his disciples out as his partners in that work, so to speak. Not that we could ever go to the cross and die for someone, but we can bring the message of the one who went to the cross and died for someone we are ministers of reconciliation another place calls us ambassadors for Christ and so Jesus telling these disciples you may be tempted to you may be discouraged don't hide the light whether it's because of embarrassment or fear of persecution or because it seems like you're being ineffective Jesus says don't hide that light whatever might be the reason for doing so They should not give in to the temptation of doing so, and neither should you and I. Keep sowing the seed. Keep shining the light. Keep allowing God's Holy Spirit to use what you're doing in the midst there to draw people to himself. I imagine you could go back and think of your own life. And what was it that kind of drew you in? Even if you grew up in the church, I see some of the young guys up front here, even if you grew up in the church, there comes a point in time where it begins to make sense for yourself. And think back to what was drawing you? What was working in you? Who was God using? What message, what action was he using to bring you to the place where he said, Jesus Christ is the Messiah and I want to follow him with my whole heart. So here we are 2,000 years later with the same solemn responsibility these guys had. Look at 23, Jesus says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's this sort of this poetic way of saying where the Lord challenges our attention. Are you listening? Not just, are you hearing me? Are you listening to what it is I'm saying? Essentially, he's saying this. Look, pay attention to what you hear. Pay attention to how you hear. That is, what do you do with that which has been entrusted to you? How do you respond? How do you move forward? Because remember, that's God's desire, is that truth would go forward. It's God's desire. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says this, It's God's desire that many will come to the knowledge of him. That's how Greg translates it here. It says, This is good and is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the Lord's desire. And that's what he would have for us. Now he goes on in verse 24. Let me read that to you. It says, And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use... It will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. God's desire is that all people would come to him. And he's entrusted that message to each one of us to communicate to other people. Here's what I think this is saying. Those who take heed to that uh, in, entrustment, I'm not sure where the word is there, but those who take heed and respond and, and they take that which God has given them and they go and they give it forward, they're going to be entrusted with even greater opportunities even more opportunities to spread the gospel to other people that need to hear it and share that message. Gravity is a law of planet Earth. And even as there is gravity and these kinds of natural laws that take place here on our Earth, there's also kingdom laws, if you will. And it is a law of the kingdom of heaven that to one who uses well what he has, even more will be imparted to that person. As Jesus said, you've been faithful in little. I'm going to put you over much. And conversely, to the one that closes themselves to truth, even the little bit of truth that that individual has has had revealed to them will be taken away. Our response, the measure of our attention we use, it means everything. And so if we genuinely stop, listen, and consider, the Lord says even more will be measured out to us. But if we stubbornly refuse to engage... Even that which we have will be taken away. Now you say, wow, Jesus, you're so mean. I can't believe Jesus is this mean. Look, Jesus is not mean here. This is not a statement on the character of the Lord. It's a statement about the nature of truth and the consequences of refusing to listen to truth. And it's the disciple's job to share that truth. And so Jesus continues in 26... He tells another parable, he says this, The kingdom of God is is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in a sickle, because the harvest has come. Jesus goes back to the seed idea, the farming idea of the kingdom of god he compares the ki- the work of the kingdom of god to a seed being scattered on the ground and the farmer has the idea i got to put seed in the ground and fruit will come up eventually but i don't even know now i'm sure somebody somewhere knows now how this all works i, I just know you put it in the ground and you water it and eventually something's going to come up but th- the idea back then is we don't really know how it works We don't know how this little tiny seed can go underground and it can become this big plant when it comes out of ground. What exactly is going on? We don't know, but we know that's how it works. And so what do we do? We plant our seed into the ground. Jesus is saying that here. He trusts this farmer guy. He trusts that that's how it happens because that's a law of kingdom work. God changes people and his word bears fruit. How exactly that all takes place, that mystery it's a mystery to the farmer. It's a mystery to the minister. But it grows. It's through a process. And the farmer in the story has faith in the process. Jesus is saying that's the same way it needs to be in the kingdom of God. You need to trust the process, as the Sixers say. I, I'm going to say it like 15 times now over the next couple of minutes. Um, but you just need to trust that process. God's minister, which is you and I, we are in partnership with God. We sow the seed. He does the miraculous work. We reap the harvest and we trust in a process we don't fully understand. Jesus wants his disciples to have confidence in the power of the seed, the word of God. Sometimes folks are trying to serve and minister. Churches do this a lot. We really want to reach our community. And we've been holding a Bible study for, for three weeks and it's not happening. So we need to do something else. We're going to bring in smoke next week you know, and light shows, and we're going to, you know, draw people, we're going to have bicycles away, and we're going to do all this stuff and attract the crowd. It takes time. And you got to stick to the plan. You keep sowing the word and sowing the word and sowing the word, and the Lord brings about the increase. And we are so confident in that. We build an entire ministry. This whole ministry is around the word of God in one way or another. And we're committed to that, And God blesses that, and he's used it, even as he's blessed it in so many of our lives here at Calvary Chapel. We praise the Lord for that. Jesus wants his disciples to commit themselves to that. Now, I think there's also a personal application to this that is good for each of us, and that is simply this. Sow the word into your life. Sow the word into your life. Take time every single day. You're taking it here on this Sunday morning. Praise the Lord. Take time every single day to sow the Word into your life. Now what oftentimes happens is this. You commit yourself. I'm going to have a daily time in the Bible. In the morning, afternoon, lunchtime. You know what? I'm going to take a half hour of my lunchtime and I'm going to read my Bible or listen to something while I walk. Or, and you come up with all of these plans. And you do that for about a week. And you begin to realize I'm still the same as I was a week ago. I wasted all that time. You know, and, and you don't see it happening right away and you begin to think to yourself, you know what, it's not gonna happen, it's not gonna work in my life. Just the opposite is true. Sow the word into your life. I've sown the word, I've been a Christian now for about 30 years or so, and very early on in my walk with the Lord, I learned the valuable lesson of having a daily quiet time in the Lord. Just the lesson of, you should do this for yourself. Not so much the skills of how to do it, just you should do it. And so, I, I would say, pretty honestly, pretty much every day since then, taking some time in the word of God. And over 30 years, God just used his word in my life. And he changes my perspective, and he changes my thinking, and he points out areas of my life that need to be more like his son. It's just this gradual process of things. Sow the word into your life. God will accomplish the results. He'll change you. He uses his word in our lives. And just as a ministry has to trust the process, We as individuals we need to trust the process it may not seem like it's happening but first there's a little sprout i was just looking at the grass out here that we planted today was the first i haven't been here in a couple days because of the weekend and stuff but today was the first day i noticed little green grass popping up i think it works it works look at that first a little sprout then a blade then the ear then the full grain you know it will happen now, Jesus goes on again, another parable, verse 30. He said to them, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? He says, It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and it becomes larger than all the garden plants, and it puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nest in the shade. So think about it for a second. The mustard seed, you may not be familiar with the mustard seed. It's a lot like a, a sesame seed. You ever get a sesame seed bagel, my favorite bagel? You, you, get, you don't have to buy them for me. Uh, because I say that about like desserts, and next thing I know, 900 of them come in. And then this is your fault, people. All right? I blame you. Anyway, if you, take, if you look at a little sesame seed, that's kind of the size of a mustard seed. There's probably smaller ones than that, poppy seeds or whatever it may be. But you you get the point of what Jesus is saying. You have this tiny little seed, this tiny little seed, this mustard seed here. And a bird could come up and take that away, couldn't he? One bird could come and snatch that away. At the end, though, you have a bush with branches that lots of birds can rest in. What a transformation. What a change. Jesus is drawing uh, us to this. He says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's a little speck of a thing, but mysteriously it grows to be one of the largest of the plants or of these bushes that it's describing. Again, so large that the birds of the air can settle in it. And the message then for these disciples about to go out on kingdom work is this. Your little ministry, which seems like it's not accomplishing anything, nor will it ever be able to accomplish anything, can can completely transform. And you go from a tiny seed... this big work. Now there is a common understanding of this interpretation, excuse me, this uh, common interpretation of this parable. And it essentially says this, that the mustard bush or the mustard tree is the church and that the birds of the air are the evil birds that are referenced earlier in the chapter. Remember in the seed and the pathway and the birds come and they take it away. And so then the understanding of this parable is this. It's that the church is going to grow so large that apostates, evil people, are going to come into the church. They're going to take up residence within the church and they'll bring harm to the church. That's a common, uh, I wouldn't say the common, but it is a common interpretation of this parable. And certainly that has happened. As the church has grown, you think back to... Um, in the 300s, when the Roman Emperor Christianity used to be illegal in Rome, and it grew like crazy. As even though it was illegal and people were being put to death in the Roman Empire, uh, the emperor himself was seen as a deity. And once a year, as the people brought their taxes to pay uh, to the emperor or to the the person collecting the taxes, they would have to bow bow the knee, give the money, bow the knee, and essentially claim. Uh, that give homage to the emperor as a deity. Well, a lot of Christians are like, I can't do that. Just pay the money, you know, no big deal. All right, I'll give them the cash. But I, I can't bow my knee and say that somebody else is a deity. I just can't do it. And many Christians are being put to death for that. Well, in 324, I believe it was, A.D., the Roman emperor was Constantine. And Constantine says, who knows if it's true or not, that he had this vision of a cross in the sky and that he heard this voice that said, if you will put this cross on all of your soldiers' shields, uh, you'll go into this battle and you'll win this particular battle. And so it either happened, uh, I I tend to think it didn't, I tend to think it was like, you know what, I can get a million Christians to fight with me if I tell them God is sending us forth. But who knows, I wasn't there. Um, But anyway... Christianity then became the legal religion. Everything else was a false religion that was illegal to follow. And so everybody now, quote unquote, becomes a Christian. And unfortunately, a lot of junk made its way into the church. And people talk about the history of the church. Well, that's the history of the church. All that junk that made its way in. Dark Ages, Middle Ages, all those kinds of things. That's a little aside. That's bonus material uh, there for you here. So some people say that's what this passage is about. I don't think that's the point that Jesus is getting to. So if you've heard that, that's cool. Go with it. If, if that's where the Lord kind of leads you and directs you, there's certainly, it's not an untruth, but I don't think that's what really is get, Jesus is getting at here. Jesus has been teaching the disciples about the mystery of kingdom work. And as we've seen on repeated occasions, the disciples, they have this misconstrued idea that the the kingdom of God was sort of going to explode on the scene. That any day now, everybody's going to become a Christian. That seems to be their understanding. The kingdom of God's going to take over here on the earth. You remember in Acts chapter 1, this is after Jesus rose from the dead, and it says this, when they had come together, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord... Will, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it like going to explode and everything will be good now? They had thought that even before. Remember the two disciples said, look, when you come into your kingdom, when you enter into your kingdom, can I be on your right and on your left side? As if he's going to be a king and there's a throne here and a throne here. Jesus came into his kingdom on a cross. He would say to these guys, mother, do you really want that? Is that really what you want? You're one son on one side and one son on the other side. I don't think you do. They had this misunderstanding of what the coming of the kingdom would be. And when that didn't seem to be happening, discouragement, confusion seemed to set in. Jesus is preempting that. And he's sharing these things. Everything has a beginning. With the exception of Adam and Eve, creation, whatever, nothing emerges fully grown. It takes time and it's a slow-growing process. The church began with an individual, capital I, Jesus Christ, and it's meant to end with the whole world. And the disciples should never be daunted by the small beginnings of ministry, even as you and I. Some of us are new believers here, and we're enthused, we're excited, we're sharing our faith with other people, and people aren't yet responding, and we're daunted by the task. How come people aren't listening to me? I have just found this. And you know what it's like. You've been a Christian for a long time. And sort of some of the, the wonder of it maybe fades a little bit. It's not at the forefront of your thinking. But when you first get saved, it floods in. This is unbelievable. The whole world needs to, to know this. And you tell everybody and people don't be, aren't responding. And you think, what is going on? How could people not be responding to this? Jesus is saying, look, don't be daunted by the small beginnings of your ministry. He goes on in verse 33. Wrapping up, he says, And with many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. With many such parables, notice he spoke to them as they were able to hear it. Jesus is a master teacher. He knows what we're able to receive. He gives us what we need in the doses that we're able to receive them. I think about the work of God in my life. And Jesus began to reveal areas of sin in my life when I was a new believer, and we worked on those particular areas of sin. And I began to get victory in those particular areas of sin. And I'm like, "This is great. I'm all set. Everything that the Lord's been laying on my heart has been dealt with. I'm in a perfect place with you, Lord." And the Lord's like, "Yeah, you know, I've been meaning to talk to you about another area, as I'm able to say." But quite honestly, and so over 30 years. There's been hundreds of areas that the Lord has dealt with during that time. But in my first week, two weeks, month, year of walking with the Lord, if the Lord dumped a hundred areas on me and said, this is what we're going to work on, that would have been overwhelming. As we are able to receive it, the Lord reveals these things. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because those who respond to those initial things, he says, great job, well done. Tomorrow morning, we get started on a new area, and he reveals another one, and then another one a little later, and then another one, and it is for our good, transforming us into the image of his son. Amen, friends? Amen. Let's pray, and then we're going to celebrate communion. Lord, you're so good, and you're so faithful, and you're a master teacher, and you combine that with you're a teacher that loves his pupils. And so, Lord, you desire the very best for each one of us in this room, for all of those loved ones that we think of that are outside of this room, even for our enemies that are outside of this room. You desire the very best. And so, Father, we pray that you would take the things we've considered here this morning and you'd, uh, you'd implant them into our hearts. Lord, we've readied our hearts with uh, just a wonderful time of worship earlier time of prayer. We've readied our hearts to receive from you. So take that word and plant it down deep that it might bear much fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.